Concussions and blast injury are common occurrences in the field of battle. Emerging evidence suggests that exposure to a blast can produce neurologic consequences, but much remains unknown. This is Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner. With me today is Dr. Jack Sow, former Director of Traumatic Brain Injury Programs for the U.S. Navy Bureau of Medicine and Surgery and Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Dr. Sow, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much for inviting me to join your show today. Dr. Sow, before we discuss the details of your research, let's start with working definitions for concussion and blast exposure. So let's start with concussion first. So the United States Department of Defense, as well as the American Academy of Neurology, the physiatry organization, and other organizations have specific definitions of concussion. I am most familiar with the definition from the United States military. The Departments of Defense and Veterans Affairs share a common definition of traumatic brain injury. And that definition is that a traumatic brain injury is a traumatically induced structural injury and or physiological disruption of brain function as a result of an external force that is indicated by new onset or worsening of at least one of the following clinical signs immediately following the event. Any period of loss of or a decreased level of consciousness any loss of memory for events immediately before or after the injury, otherwise known as post-traumatic amnesia, any alteration in mental state at the time of the injury, confusion, disorientation, slow thinking, etc., neurological deficits such as weakness, loss of balance, change in vision, paresis or plegia, sensory loss, aphasia, etc., that may or may not be transient or an intracranial lesion. So, simplified, you either have to have a blow or jolt to the head and at least one of the following events, any alteration or loss of consciousness, post-traumatic amnesia, um, as defined for concussion. So if you have transient neurological deficits or an intracranial lesion, that may push you towards the moderate or severe head injury category. In terms of blast, the military tends to think of it as you're either exposed to the blast shockwave or you hear a blast, which is far in the distance, or you see some an explosion. But for the purposes of our paper, we tried to quantify the extent of exposure based upon some research that has been done looking at primary blast waves after an explosion. So it sounds like concussion is very much a clinical diagnosis. Is there a specific test, or do you really have to examine the patient and get the history? So concussion right now is purely a clinical diagnosis. Some of the listeners there may be familiar with news reports of sort of automated computerized testing, which is done by many schools and professional sports teams, as well as research that is going on in imaging, blood biomarkers, and other means of detecting changes in brain function after concussion. And so currently, the most challenging aspect of concussion is actually making that initial diagnosis because it is purely a clinical history uh, diagnosis. Now, if you're knocked out cold, that's easy to make the diagnosis. What happens, though, is most people are not knocked out cold. They actually have this blow or jolt to the head and this transient alteration in consciousness or exposure to a blast wave and a transient alteration in consciousness in combat. 
And so in those cases, it's much trickier to make the correct diagnosis because you want to make sure that people do not go back into combat or don't continue playing sports to try to mitigate the risk of re-injury. Well, tell us now about your recent publication in the journal uh, Neurology regarding concussion and blast exposure in Marines. So the paper reports results from a survey that we implemented while I was director of the brain injury programs for the United States Navy Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. And specifically, what we looked at were Marines who had returned from combat deployment. The work stems from a surveillance effort that we instituted to improve post-deployment care for Marines who may have experienced blast exposure and or concussion while on a combat deployment. And what we asked Marines to do was to complete surveillance forms as part of their post-deployment surveillance care and quantified whether they had a concussion or not during their deployment, as well as any exposures to blasts. We also asked if they had prior histories of concussion or blast exposure on previous combat deployments or any time in their lifetime. And what we found is that there appears to be a continuum in terms of severity of symptoms that were reported after return from deployment. And we surveyed people within several weeks to several months after the deployment period and found that if you had a concussion, your symptoms were most likely to be the most severe, whereas blast exposure alone, if you felt a blast wave with an intermediate level of symptoms compared to no exposure at all while you were on the deployment. I was very much impressed by the high percentage of Marines who had experienced at least one concussion. I believe it was 28%, and one blast injury, 40%. You know, is this just part of being a modern Marine, or is there anything that can be done to limit these injuries? So the high percentages, I believe, are from selection bias in the sense that we surveyed the units that were combat infantry that we knew had the most combat exposure to either blasts or other combat activities. So we're not surprised by the higher percentages. Obviously, if we had chosen Marines whose job was to stay on the base and do other work supporting those actually out fighting at the front lines, we suspect the numbers would have been much different. So in terms of if you're combat infantry, though, and sort of during the height of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, the chances of you seeing or hearing or feeling a blast was fairly high. In terms of actual concussions, as you probably are aware, concussion and post-traumatic stress were labeled the signature injuries of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so it's not surprising that there is a high number of concussions. And I wonder if these numbers aren't really an underestimate, as this was a survey you did when the Marines returned. They probably weren't out there taking notes of every time something blew up. Are they trained to identify and track these events? So the department now has a formal tracking mechanism. But when we started our effort, this was before the tracking mechanism was implemented. But our feeling is that most people were fairly honest and actually recalled their experiences reasonably well because the surveillance was done very soon after they returned from their deployment. So we were getting them when they were fairly fresh and their memories were fairly fresh. I think people had no reason not to be honest with us because we explained that this was part of the medical surveillance 
and that our goal was to provide clinical care. So this did not start as a research study. This started as a clinical surveillance program to help triage Marines who might need additional medical attention after their deployment. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jack Sow about his research in concussion and blast injury in Marines. Dr. Sow, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, may be the result of frequent concussions. Are you looking into the possibility of CTE in Marines 10, 20 years down the road? That is a great question. What we know from CTE really comes from the work of Bennett Amalu as well as Anne McKee, Bob Stern, and their colleagues at the Boston University. And so we know that there appear to be four stages of CTE from mild to severe, both pathologically as well as changes in behavioral and or memory performance in individuals prior to progressing to dementia. What we do not know, and which both the VA, DOD, and others are highly interested in, is what we don't know is what is the true risk for developing CTE after a history of concussion or blast exposure or combination. And so DOD has invested, along with the NIH and other funding organizations, lots of money into trying to answer this question. Certainly, the VA and the DOD are very concerned about any risk of developing CTE or any clinical sequelae after combat exposure as well as uh, blast and concussion. So clinical efforts are underway to ensure the best care for our wounded warriors as well as those who fought in the conflicts and were not wounded. Now, Marines are faced with concussion and blast injury as, you know, part of their job, but many civilian injuries occur in contact sports that are elective. Would you venture an opinion? Do you think we're taking enough steps to protect participants in football, hockey, soccer, and other contact sports where concussion is relatively frequent? So I think we've come a long way since the American Academy of Neurology guidelines about 1997. So they, at that time, had a very different set of guidelines than they do now, which you may recall sort of back then, they said, you know, if the symptoms clear up, you can return to your sport on the same day, whereas now the motto is, if in doubt, sit it out. So I think that sports teams and the public are highly aware of concussion now, thanks to the efforts of the military, other civilian groups, as well as public sort of entities such as Congress are shining a, light, a spotlight on this issue of combat concussions. And so it's all helped to raise public awareness. And so I think that steps are being taken in the right direction to try to minimize the risk of concussion. But I think that there's much that we don't know about concussion, and so that's why research is so important. But also, there needs to be greater awareness even than now so that people recognize and can help on the sidelines. Their son or daughter is playing sports, and it looks like they've been injured to be able to work with the coaches or athletic trainers to make sure that they don't return to play that day, as well as the care that they need after the game ends. Well, at least for Marines, it sounds like concussion and blast injury is often a fact of life. Is there any medication or treatment that can decrease the likelihood of sequelae from these injuries? So right now, there's much that we still don't understand about how blast affects the brain and how concussion occurs after a blast wave hits you. 
the only level one evidence for care after concussion is really rest and education. So rest meaning cognitive and physical rest to recover, and education meaning you're educating people on the expected recovery times, as well as clinical sequelae that may occur after a concussion. And so the traditional teaching has been 95% of people recover within a seven-day window. And that's based on an NCAA sports study that was done in the mid-1990s by Mike McRae and his colleagues. The DOD and the NCAA are now funding a new study that has been running for two years now looking at uh, collegiate athletes. And the military academies are participating in this effort as well to see if those original findings are replicated as well as to extend from those findings to understand better what happens after a sports injury and sports concussion. I think that additional research on intermediate and long-term sequelae after concussion are needed, but unfortunately right now there's no medication or other intervention that can help speed recovery or even prevent injury. Right. I was thinking of, you know, like therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest seems to have some beneficial effects. You know, it would be great if there was some treatment or a pill that you could take after a concussion that might assist the healing process. I agree it would be great if there was a pill, but unfortunately there isn't yet. I know that there are research groups that are looking into this possibility, but as we talked earlier in the program, having a blood test to verify a clinical diagnosis of concussion would be great. So right now we don't even have that or even better mechanisms for actually objectively quantifying if there are deficits. Because as an example, the military uses the military acute concussion evaluation, which is a sideline assessment of concussions modeled after the NFL's sideline assessment of concussion. And even sort of these sideline tests are not 100% sensitive or specific. So I think one area of research that is absolutely critical is to try to get better upfront diagnoses of concussion, to sort of be able to make a more definitive diagnosis more than just the history that you get right now that you make the diagnosis on. Can you discuss some of your current research with us? So we're looking at several things. One is we hope to get a sort of better objective measure of cognitive deficits after an injury to try to see if we can improve sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing concussion on a sideline or an emergency room. Another thing that we're looking at is what are the clinical sequelae of concussion that you may have had a few years before to see if we can get a better handle on what is the true risk of somebody developing dementia or other neurological sequelae. One thing that's sort of as an aside, you know that there's research that suggests there's a higher rate of motor neuron disease after a history of head injury, and that's been published in neurology as well as other journals. So I think that all of these things are pointing to having concussions are not a good thing. So better to see if you can protect your brain as much as possible. Well, as always, it sounds like prevention is the way to go rather than trying to treat the injury. Well, I think that you need both prevention as well as uh, treatment. And similarly, like from an imaging perspective, as MRI gets better and better in terms of resolution, we may be able to use that modality, which is not currently able to detect changes in the brain, to be able to help maybe either prognosticate outcomes or to identify those who were injured and have the quali. 
And then I guess one other thing that would be important to know is that sort of looking at the literature in terms of what's known, more recent literature suggests that up to 30 to 40 percent of people or children may actually have some sort of clinical sequelae that's persistent after a concussion. And if these numbers are starkly different than the sports study literature that's now several decades old. And so if the numbers are truly higher, I think that there's an implication for what the healthcare system might look like in terms of caring for individuals, as well as a more urgent need than there already is for identifying those people who are not going to make a full recovery in the early period and making sure that they get the care that they need so that you can treat sort of, say, headaches or other sequelae that may occur. Absolutely. Dr. Sao, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your experience and insights regarding concussion and blast injury. Well, thank you very much for your interest in area, Dr. Wilmer. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. To access this episode and others in this series and to download the ReachMD app, please visit ReachMD.com where you can be part of the knowledge. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.